Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to the next episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashitino. And uh, there have been several things going on the last few days which I wanted to touch upon before I launched into this latest podcast. Um, Yesterday, December 7th, a date which will live in infamy. Sorry, that's my best uh, FDR um, impersonation. I can do a lot of impersonations fairly well. Um, FDR, I don't know. I probably could if I really gave a lot of thought to it. But in any case, um, December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day in the United States, a day in which Japan launched a uh, unannounced attack on the U.S. forces, the naval forces in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, um, destroying multiple battleships. Uh, not any of the aircraft carriers, however, which would prove decisive uh, in the long run, uh, but which started the U.S. involvement in World War II. So we always spend a moment talking about that. Um, and and um, and recognizing it. And if you haven't been there, um, I've been lucky enough to go out to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Um, if you haven't been there and you do have the ability to go there, I do recommend it. It is a place of um, really just, it, it, it's just, there is this gravitas to the place. You go there and you're like, oh my God, this is where everything happened. This is where... Uh, you know, over 2,000 American sailors and, and other personnel lost their lives uh, in 1941 on a Sunday morning without any warning. Um, you know, you can still see the USS Arizona, you know, uh, um, which, by the way, and this is something I've always told my students at school, um, <clears throat> the USS Arizona had a policy. And the policy was this. If you had ever been a sailor on the Arizona, you had the right, when you died, to be cremated and have your ashes um, sprinkled in the bay across the remains of the Arizona. If you were actually on the ship when the attacks happened, December 7th, 1941, you had the right to be cremated, have your remains placed in a container, and then have a U.S. Navy diver swim down to the wreckage of the Arizona and have your remains placed in the Arizona to be reunited with your shipmates who had died those, well, now it's it's, it's 70 plus years on now. Uh, But I was reading the other day that the last Remember the the last person who had that right to have that applied to them passed away, uh, and and so uh, the U.S. Navy was going to place his remains inside of the Arizona to be reunited with his shipmates who died uh, on that terrible day uh, so many years ago, and uh, you know I just this is one of these things where, uh, you know I I've never been in the military. But I can appreciate this because it's an issue of a respect for the place, respect for the people, respect for the location. And, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of pomp and circumstance with the military. Uh, not all of it, though, is unjustified. Um, there is a sense, there is a camaraderie that runs across generations, that runs across timelines, that runs through wars. 
you know, and, and this is the deal. And, you know, it, it is a reminder also of the following fact that at this rate right now, we are rapidly running through World War II veterans. Um, there's going to be a point in the very near future where there will be no more World War II veterans alive. Um, very soon there will be no one to talk to us about what happened. Um, I always talk about my grandfather who passed away several years ago. He was a World War II veteran. He used to talk about the war. But fairly soon you're going to get to a point where there's going to be no one alive who can actually tell you what happened. Everything that we know about the war is going to be through records. I mean, fortunately, we have a lot, especially in the United States, World War II. But it runs into the issue, and I always bring this up. When you have no one left to talk about the war, when you have no one left who was actually there, then all of your records of what happened end up falling to, you know, secondary sources, tertiary sources, who heard what, when, who was there. You don't have any more direct sources. You don't have anyone who's like, you yeah, know, I was there. I remember this. I remember, I remember liberating a concentration camp, and this is what I saw. Now you have to rely on, well, you know what? I read the report from what happened when someone liberated a concentration camp, or I, I, I saw something on the news about someone who liberated a concentration camp. Um, it, it's very important, and I always say this about we as historians – this is our moral obligation to humanity. We have to record history. We have to do it in whatever form it may be, because if we don't, we allow people to to suggest that things were not that way. I mean, again, I'm a former student who uh, she's now teaching history, social studies history, and we're talking about 1984. The book by George Orwell, which is my favorite book in the world. I mean, it's it's just, it's just uh, you know, it's funny. In seventh grade, I read Animal Farm, and Miss um, Biddo, if you're out there, and if you manage to hear this podcast, through the grace of God, um, <clears throat> it was one of the, the eye-opening books of my life, Animal Farm. And then I went and read 1984, which Animal Farm was kind of the uh, opening salvos 1984 is Orwell at his absolute best. I mean, it's just, there's no punches pulled. 1984 to me is the most quintessential book. Um, I don't know. Do I dare say that has ever been written? I don't know because it, it really encompasses everything. 1984 talks about the fact that everything that we're dealing with now in the world, the concept of fake news, what is real, what's not. Orwell challenges us, especially in 1984, he says, yeah, that's a good question. What is real? What's real? Is something real because it happened? Is something real because we believe it happened? Um, does it really matter if it happened or not? You know, if I say that, you know, this certain thing happened and everyone agrees with me that it happened, does it really matter whether it happened or not? And you know what? Years ago, I, I had a debate. I had several debates with a, a – she was a good friend of mine. Um, sadly, we've, we've fallen apart 
in, in large part because of this and because she's, you know, kind of gone with the whole Ayn Rand deal and, uh, you know, extreme objectivism, which is laughable in ways. But the bottom line is that, you know, I, I always argued, I said, you know, it doesn't really matter because, look, what ma- reality, there is a reality. But if people ignore it, if people say, listen, um, I'm not going to believe that this happened, and everyone agrees with them, then does it really matter whether it happened or not? Now, on the one hand, you could say, yes, because it actually did happen. That's true. But when people say, no, it didn't happen, and if they agree on it, then it doesn't really matter whether it happened or not. Because what people accept as a reality... Uh, turns into reality and and going forward you know that is just as powerful as the physical reality of things what we believe uh, encompasses far more about you know reality than what we would like to think it does um, so having said that and and having brought up that issue and in 1984 and all its goodness and I'll be talking more about that in the future I've got I've got many podcasts that I want to do about that um, what I wanted to talk about today, uh, because I was watching a bunch of ads on TV and a bunch of things, um, was the limits of capitalism and the discussion of capitalism, socialism, uh, what's going on here. You know, these are buzzwords being thrown about. And uh, mark my words, as the elections uh, come closer, the, the, for those of you who are not in America, the 2020 elections... Um, the you know the 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 reelection possible reelection of President Donald Trump versus his uh, competitors on the Democratic side. Uh, this is going to be thrown about more and more because these are buzzwords, and we all love buzzwords. Um, I w- let me bring about the following though, because Michael Bloomberg, who's a billionaire, uh, he's a, he was a Republican, now a Democrat, running for election. Um, you know, he's talked about, uh, you know, his way of thinking and his way of bringing about more jobs and more this and more that. Um, so let's get some things out of the way right off the bat. First of all, I'm going to say the following. The economy is the number one issue for most Americans, the overwhelming majority. Always has been, always will be. Uh, I remember in 1992, one of the first real political campaigns that I was, I was really like, I was old enough to understand it. Bill Clinton and Al Gore running for the presidency against uh, George H.W. Bush and Dan Tomato Quail. Um, the issue was, you know, that the economy had taken a downturn. And Clinton's whole thing, you know, a lot of his stuff relied upon, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. Okay. I do a decent enough Clinton impersonation. If you're interested, let me know. I'm available for, you know, club dates and whatnot. Uh, But that's what they hammered upon, and it resonated. The economy had gone into a bit of a tailspin, and that was really it. The economy, stupid, okay? People care about what's in their pocketbooks. They vote with their purses, as the saying goes. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, would you honestly be, you know, willing to vote against your own economic interests? Um, probably most people would say no. No, I'm not. Um, 
myself I am, but that's because I view other things as more important than than economics. But we'll get to that in a little. But here's the thing. Um, If the economy continues the way it's going right now and the stock market continues to go up, Trump will win a second term. And I say that with the following provisions. Number one, I do think that we're going to have some interference in the election. Um, I know. This is, this is oh, you're already setting the stage for, you know. No, no, no. There was, according to our intelligence agencies in the United States, and I do trust them, even if some people in government do not, I trust the intelligence agencies because these are individuals who have trained for most of their lives to be uh, the eyes and ears of America when dealing with other countries. And they've said that the elections, there was a definite attempt by the Russians to interfere in the elections, okay? Uh, How far that was, how far it went. We could talk about Facebook. We could talk about uh, Cambridge Analytics. We could talk about all this stuff. But the bottom line is that they, there was definitely an attempt by the Russians to interfere with the elections because they felt that electing Trump would be a good thing and Hillary Clinton would be a bad thing. Now, again, for the record, because I know there are people listening to this podcast, especially some of my students, I'm not preaching this, okay? I'm simply saying what the intelligence agencies came out with. So with the 2020 elections, we're going to be dealing with that again. Um, But really, we're going to be dealing with... um, you know, people voting based upon how they feel Trump has done as a president. Uh, you know, when someone's running for re-election, it's very rarely about the challenger. It's mostly an indictment of what they've done. I, I mean, the term indictment is strong, but it's it's um, they're they're really saying, do we think that Trump has done a good job from 2016 to 2020? If you do, you're going to vote for him again. If you don't, you're going to vote for someone else. That's really all it comes down to. And again, as I've said, the economy is the number one issue, and it always has been. The economy is the number one issue. If the economy continues to do well, if the stock market continues to go up, if economic, if, if unemployment rates continue to go down, if uh, job creation continues to go up, I, I'm going to tell you this right now. Trump is going to win a second term. It has nothing to do with his foreign policy. It has nothing to do with domestic issues, the wall, children in cages, nothing. None of that stuff matters to Americans. They're going to simply vote based on that. Now, the only, uh, what do we call it, an outlier, the, the issue here, this is not an outlier, the issue here is simply also how many people are going to come out to vote. Because most of the time, the higher the voter participation, the more chances Democrats win. And I think that that is as good a chance in 2020. If more people come out to vote, Democrats have a better chance of winning. And for the Democrats, going forward, there are two things that they need to look out for. Obviously, winning the presidency is one of the major things. I mean, I think that's, you know, with, with every political, well, not with every political party, with, with both political parties in every election, the issue is, can we win the presidency? But also the issue is, can we win the Senate? Because um, winning the Senate is very significant, especially now when you've got um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious 
RBG. Um, she's had some health issues. You're going to have the chance, if she cannot continue, if at some point in the next, let's say Trump wins re-election and she cannot make it to the next uh, election, Trump is going to get to put a third um, Supreme Court justice on the bench. This is going to turn into a six to three conservative majority, and this will allow them to try and, uh, you know, make changes to as many things as they can. Now, if you're a conservative, a Republican, you're thrilled about this because you're thinking, man, this is our chance to really, really, really run through a lot of our things. And if you're a liberal or Democrat, you're thinking, by God, this is, you know, the end of the world here. Um, It's neither because, honestly, you know, in the future, um, most likely things will shift back in the other direction. And, you know, we have had presidents put three Supreme Court justices on. Um, Supreme Court justices don't always vote exactly how the party that appointed them wants them to. So we'll have a lot of, you know, it's it's not the end of the world. And at the same time, it's not uh, the beginning of a glorious new era. But um, what I really wanted to talk about, because I've been I've been getting away from a little bit. I wanted to talk about with all of the stuff going on. Concepts of capitalism and education and what what Teddy Roosevelt, former President Theodore Roosevelt, talked about, a square deal. And I've, I've really ended up becoming more and more a square deal socialist. And I'm going to explain everything. So first of all, let's talk about education and capitalism. The bottom line is that... Um, <clears throat> Many capitalists will tell you that they, you know, many people who profess, a, a, you know, supportive capitalism will tell you, well, you know, education is a great thing because we get more people that are intelligent and more people that can take a part in the companies and can raise things. Um, I'm going to make the following argument. I don't think capitalists really want uh, public education as a major um, thing. And, and here's why. Number one, uh, first of all, when you are talking about um, education. With most companies, all you really need is a few people to run the company, to be these upper echelon managers. The majority of people that you need in any company are simply yes-men or people that will simply carry out instructions. You do need managers, but you can get those managers from private schools, okay? Private schools in which uh, the elites attend, in which the students are, you know, the sons and daughters of these wealthy people, they're the ones that are going to run things. They're the ones that are going to become vice presidents and CEOs and CFOs and all the CIOs and ABCs, XYZs, whatever you want to call them. They're the ones going to be doing that. Um, The majority of people you need in any company are simply people like, you know, with Henry Ford with the assembly line, which is like, listen, you just need to know how to do the following. Can you put a tire onto an axle? Yes. Okay, good. Done. Can you put a seat into the back of the car? Done. You don't need to know how to do everything. You need a very specific skill set. And you don't need a tremendous amount of intelligence about that. And that's what I really feel. I feel that with education... um, you know, capitalists, conservatives tend to try and obliterate education. Because what does education do? Education empowers people. Education empowers individuals 
to go out there and to make a difference. Education, uh, you know, gives people the weapons with which to take on uh, the elites and to go out there and form their own companies and to, you know, uh, throw up competition. And nobody wants competition for companies. You have a company that's producing something, you don't want competition about it. You want a monopoly. You want to simply be able to sit back and be like, I'm the only one making this. And so you don't want any kind of competition. And that's why I've really become more of that. Those of you who know about history <clears throat> will know about Theodore Roosevelt, president of the United States. And, and he was a Republican. So let's get this out of the way because I know I'm going to get a bunch of people my brother probably foremost would be like, oh, so you're supporting a Republican. I'm supporting a policy. At one point in history, in the early 1900s, Republicans were progressives, okay? There was a, a, a theory called progressivism. Theodore Roosevelt was one of the big ones, okay? And he had a theory that was called the square deal, okay? Um, and then he talked about the fact that People should have equal opportunity for success, okay? They shouldn't be given success. And I'm a very big believer in, you know what, if you're going to come out there and be like, oh, well, I don't have to work in order to get something. No, no, no. Wrong. I'm a big believer in offering opportunity to success, opportunity to action. If you choose not to take that opportunity, hey, I feel bad for you, okay, in the sense that you've been given this opportunity and you are simply turning it down. But the problem in America right now is that in, in many, many, many places, and, and I'll tell you, working in an urban school district, I can tell you this right off the bat, <clears throat> the access to opportunity is really questionable because you've got so many kids that don't get that opportunity because of their home lives, because of their communities, because of the fact that, you know, they're growing up in these situations where they're struggling to live and die, to live or die, okay? They're, they're not as concerned about what their grades are in algebra as, am I going to eat tomorrow? And that really is the basis of what I would call the socialist imperative, the idea that um, we have an obligation to provide for people in the sense that we provide for them for the opportunity to succeed. We have no obligation to make people succeed. And that's one of the big things that I think people get wrong about socialism. This is this criticism of you want everyone to be equal. You want everyone to have the same thing. No. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't want everyone to have the same thing. Why would I want someone who does no work to have the same as me who goes out there and works my butt off? I go out there, I'm going to be waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning tomorrow morning. Going out there and working, you know, nonstop. I'm on stage, I'm a teacher. I'm working, I got lesson plans. I've got, you know, projects to grade. I'm, I'm going to have to try and educate these kids. Why would I want someone who does nothing to end up getting the same as me? That's ridiculous. I'll tell you what I do want. What I want is I want every young person from Alaska 
to New Jersey and every young person elsewhere in the world to be able to have an access to opportunity. I want them to be able to go to school. I want them to be able to have a chance to start up a company, to be able to, you know, uh, go into education, to be able to do anything that they want. Now, if they choose to ignore that, if they decide, you know what, I'm going to just party my way through college and do nothing, well, too bad for you, okay? Um, You can go ahead and take a minimum wage job doing something. I don't believe that you have a right to success. What I believe is that you have a right to the opportunity to succeed. And that if you don't want to pay attention to that, if you want to just screw around and screw up, then, hey, sucks to be you. But if you want to do something, if you want to have that opportunity, and that brings us to things like college education and student loans and everything, I mean, I think that a student who does well, um, you know, we should make opportunities for them to have their student loans forgiven, subsidized by other things. But don't we want that? Don't we want to reward good work? Okay, and don't we want to say if you're not going to do this, then then you shouldn't be. And this is not capitalism per se, because capitalism doesn't care. Capitalism doesn't care who you are, how good you are. Nepotism takes reign. Um, you know the the idea that you're someone's cousin, so you get into a position takes reign. I don't want any of that. Okay, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you're related to. I don't want any of that to matter. What I want to matter is what you're bringing to the table and, and your, your ideas and what you can do. And we need to encourage that. We need to encourage people to try and accomplish something, okay? Because that's the way you move forward in life. That's the way you get people that are like, hey, I've got an idea on how we can put people on Mars. I've got an idea for this. Great, let's go with it, Okay. You know, you, you, don't, you don't have that, right? Um, and so I think that that's one of the major things that we're dealing with right now that we need to try and address. And unfortunately, we're not doing that right now. Right now, we're, we're treating people and it's like, oh, man, you didn't succeed. Well, you know, this is the United States. Sucks to be you. And it's like, no, I mean, how are you going to tell me? It reminds me of a great um, I thing I read somewhere. It's not my own idea. I'm not claiming it. <clears throat> but I read how they're in education during one of the teachers' uh, meetings, you know, these useless things that we have every now and then. Uh, they brought in um, an individual. He was a, a manager for a major uh, cranberry firm or something like that. This is called a cranberry company because we try to treat education like a business, um, which it is completely not. It has nothing to do with because it's just so much more dynamic than that. But they brought him in, and uh, there was one teacher who, um, you know, was like, oh, so, uh, you know, you guys, um, you know, you, you make the best cranberries in the world. And he, the guy, you know, the, after he had done his presentation, he said, yes, ma'am, we do. The best cranberries all over. He's beaming. And she was like, and, you know, all of your products are the result of your ability to, uh, you know, make the, you know, to choose the best cranberries. And he was like, of course, why would we have anything left? And then she turned around and said, so, you know, um, when you get cranberries that aren't as good as the others, uh, what do you do with them? And he said, well, we, we get rid of them. 
And it was at that point that the reality started sinking in. And she turned around and said, so what you're saying is that, you know, you're willing to get rid of the cranberries that are not as good as the other cranberries and just get, just toss them by the wayside. And then the, the dawn began to break on him. The reality in education is this. Not every student is an A-plus student. It doesn't mean that we have a right to toss them by the wayside. I mean, if you wanted to improve grades, why wouldn't you just toss out of school all the students who weren't doing well? That's anathema to what we believe as teachers. And I will tell you this, you know, we have to deal with students that are not doing as well as others. When I say we have to deal with them, I mean that it is morally imperative. You cannot just say, well, this student's not doing so well, I'm going to ignore them. No, you don't get to do that as a teacher. You have to teach those students. You have to work to try and reach them. You're not going to reach all of them. Some of them are just going to say, listen, I don't want to have to deal with this. I'm dropping out. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And it has always killed me and it always will kill me that these students, you know, are not able to be reached. But by God, you have to have that incentive. You have to try and reach them. You have to work with them. You can't just toss them out. You can't just take the creme de la creme. And be like, well, these are my grades. No, because not every student is like that. And I will tell you another thing. A lot of students, especially in the younger grade levels, that look like they're like, oh, this this kid, he or she is not going to do anything. Yeah, you don't know that, okay? You don't know that, and I'll tell you what else. Um, They might, you know, reach something great. How many great students... Albert Einstein is usually the one that everyone picks, so I'll go with him. You know, well, he he might make a good clerk. You know, he might make a good uh, secretary. The man went on to redefine the way we view the universe, the way we think about time, the way we think about gravity, relativity. For God's sake, he was one of the greatest minds that have ever been produced. And according to some people... They wanted him to simply be one of these guys that you give papers to and say, okay, listen, file this, type this up, yeah, blah, blah, blah. No, you never know which student is going to be the one that you end up, you know, making a difference in their lives and they end up going out there. And that's why the education is really critical. And it is imperative because we have to develop an educated community, not just for work but also for things like voting. If you have people who are educated, how many people that go to the, 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 the voting polls simply go and pull the lever down for one party or the other because they don't know any better. They simply go and vote for someone because that's who they're like, oh, I like this person. Do you know the issues? Can you debate the issues? I mean, you get this all the time. No, they can't. But that's our obligation. We need to educate people, Okay. We need to make sure that these people know what they're talking about. And I do feel that as the workers and individuals increase in their levels of intelligence, they will come about to recognize that education is key to an informed workforce, and an informed workforce is key to the betterment of humanity. Um, not just people who are going to be yes men, not just people who are going to say, I'll obey the boss. No, we want people who are educated, who are intelligent. We want them to be the ones going forward. 
and, and forming new companies and, and blazing new paths. So that's, uh, that's pretty much my podcast for the week. Um, I'm going to try and do one uh, midweek this week. I know, I know. I've been promising all of you I was going to do that. I'm going to try this week. I really am uh, midweek because I have a lot of demand uh, for that. Uh, but for right now, I want you guys to think about um, with education and with opportunity, you know, what, what types of opportunity are you giving people? Uh, where are they getting this chance? And what are we telling them? You know, are we just simply preparing the next generation to be your minimum wage workers, or are we really preparing them to go out there and blaze new paths? And I would argue that if you're not challenging them for the latter, um, then you're doing a disservice. I know not everyone can, but you know what? You need to make that that available for the ones who, who can. Um, Please do um, go on uh, my Instagram, Antonius Optimus, at Antonius Optimus, um, is available. I'm doing every single day uh, a history thing. Please follow me over there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much my deal for right now. We're going into the end of 2019 and going to 2020, where I've threatened to run for the presidency under Ashatino 2020 a clear vision or a perfect vision for the future. We'll see what happens there. Who knows? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. In the meantime, I wish all of you uh, a wonderful rest of your week and be kind to one another. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.